please take a seat and uh, Roger's going to come and bring an Easter message for us. Happy Easter, Roger. Happy Easter, Calvin. Morning, everyone. It's going to take me a while just to get my bits and bobs in order. So why don't you say hello again to the person next to you? <laughs> Well, good to see you all. Bright and early as I was greeted. So I came to the door and I said, well, early, yeah, not bright, but early. <laughs> um, I, I've got some life-changing words to share with you this morning. We, we sang that, the second song that we sang, um, Happy Day, um, Never Gonna Be the Same. And I've got some life-changing words to share this morning. Are you excited? Bruno's definitely excited. <laughs> we always get more excitement from Bruno, which is fantastic. Um, but first, um, I wonder if you've ever had that experience that I have had with um, kitchen foil or something similar, baking paper or cling film, where you go to, you know, tear off a sheet. Lionel's nodding. You go to tear off a sheet and accidentally yank the entire roll out the box. Has anyone else done that? <laughs> Come on, be honest. We all have, haven't we? I mean, that's, that's just a kind of everyday experience. Well, I've discovered, this is, this is going to be life-changing for some of you, <laughs> I have discovered that at the end of these boxes, some of you know this already, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> there's, there, there's some perforations. And if you push the perforations in, both ends, the roll stays in the box. <laughs> I mean, that's life-changing, isn't it? I mean, did you know that, Andy? Uh, yeah. You did? <laughs> well, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> that's just one of ten amazing and life-changing hacks from YouTube channel TKOR with 12 and a half million subscribers. So if you take away nothing else this morning, maybe you'll remember that. Well, we probably don't think of things like that as life-changing, kind of interesting, helpful, um, but maybe not life-changing. But perhaps we do think of life-changing of life sometimes in terms of things we've read or seen or heard, books and films, for example, so I came across um, one lady who hated the book Middlemarch. But now she reads it every year, and she has been reading it every year for 25 years. And she writes explaining why this book has become life-changing for her. She says, the book shows us that we cannot live without other people and that we cannot live with other people unless we recognize their flaws and foibles in ourselves. And each of us makes the world a better place by honoring our duties to other people and being humble about our own importance in the grander scheme of things. So this is the message that this particular woman has taken away from the book Middlemarch by George Eliot, and it's been life-changing for her. Another person wrote about the impact of watching a film, La La Land. Has anyone seen La La Land? A few. 
This person says, I saw it in theatres with my boyfriend at the time, who I loved, but watching that movie made me realise I had very different dreams than him, and I knew I couldn't pursue them while being with him. I sobbed low-key hysterically at the end of the film. Still not sure entirely what that means, but anyway, <laughs> you get the sense of it. And then a few days later, I broke up with him. That last montage still gets me every time, thinking about what could have been, but in the end, it was the right move for both of us. So another life-changing thing for someone watching this film. Books, films, songs can be life-changing, as can other forms of art. But probably, probably for most of us, when we think of the phrase life-changing, we think of events. And I think many of those life-changing events follow a familiar pattern, whether those events are welcome or those events are unwelcome. So take Laura, for example. Ooh. Laura would have grown up, like most of us, with the reasonable expectation of enjoying relatively good health until her latter years. About three years ago, she was diagnosed with a rare and incurable tumour in her pancreas. And the reality is that she probably only has weeks to live. And that news it was a shock to her. And there have been tears and screams and hugs from those she loves. And now she has to work through the implications of this life-changing announcement. How will she spend the rest of her days? And is there a life after this one? Toby's life-changing event follows a similar pattern, although the lows are replaced by the highs. Now, Toby is from Chichester. You may recognise this face. He's blind. Toby applied to be a contestant on a game show. Michael McIntyre's the wheel. He had no expectation of being accepted, I'm sure. Uh, he had no expectation of winning, I'm sure. But the reality is, he won. And it was a shock. There were tears and screams and hugs from Sarah Cox, the broadcaster, who helped him with the last question. And now he must work through the implications of this life-changing event for him. How is he going to spend his new fortune? So life-changing events can be welcome or they can be unwelcome, but many of them, most of them, I would argue, follow a similar pattern. So let's travel back in time and place to the very first Easter Sunday morning. So two days ago, Jesus has been crucified. While he'd been alive, he'd enjoyed the company of and support of not just his 12 disciples, but of a number of women. And two of the women who watched Jesus being crucified were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And after Jesus had been taken down from the cross, these two Marys saw where Jesus had been laid. And Luke writes, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. So their expectation is to anoint Jesus' corpse 
to control the, the smell of its decomposition. That's their expectation. Now, within a few decades of his lifetime, Jesus is mentioned by Jewish historians and Roman historians, as well as dozens of Christian writers. From the Roman politician Tacitus, we learn that Jesus was executed while Pontius Pilate was the Roman prefect in charge of Judea. Some people still hold on to this belief that there was no such person as Jesus, but the ancient historians knew about him and knew he had been executed. And so did these women who came to anoint him with spices because they had seen him executed. They expected to find a corpse. But the reality is different. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And many books have been written to explain away the empty tomb in natural terms. But there are good reasons for considering the supernatural explanation given in the Gospels that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And there are hard questions to answer if this explanation is not accepted. For example, by AD 300, despite intense periods of persecution, historians estimate that 10% of the Roman Empire identified as Christian. In our own scientific rationalistic lifetime, almost one in three people identify in some way as followers of Jesus. How do we explain this? Rebecca McLaughlin, in uh, her excellent short book, Is Easter Unbelievable?, which I'll refer to a bit later, again says, how a man born into a subjugated ethnic group in an obscure Roman province who lived poor, died young, who never wrote a book, raised an army, or sat on a throne, has come to be the most impactful human in all human history, does require some kind of explanation. What also requires some explanation is why nearly all of the 12 disciples were willing to die, claiming that Jesus rose from the dead, if it didn't really happen. Or how Paul got away with writing that Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. If that wasn't the case, these things need explaining. The expectation of the women was to anoint a corpse, but the reality was an empty tomb. And then came the shock. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them, and in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. I'm sure you've seen a contestant win big money on a game show like Michael McIntyre's uh, big show, or The Wheel. And Michael McIntyre inevitably asks, how does it feel to have won 50,000 pounds. And the contestant often replies, oh, well, it hasn't sunk in yet. Still kind of coming to terms with what's just happened. Now, the women get the fright of their lives as these two men or 
angels, as we're led to understand from the other Gospels, speak to them at the tomb. Their, their ears hear the words that the men, the angels, are saying, but it must have taken a while for that to actually sink in. He has risen. You know, when people have a shock, experience shock, um, their bodies manifest all sorts of symptoms. You know, pale, cold, clammy skin, sweating, rapid, shallow breathing, feeling weak and dizzy, and more. And I can't help but think that those women experience some of those things, some of those symptoms at this news. Matthew writes that the women hurried away from the tomb afraid yet filled with joy, perfectly capturing the contradictory feelings generated by the shock of what they'd just seen and heard. Just like Lucy and Susan in the reading, who were almost as much frightened as they were overjoyed. But over the coming hours and days, this new reality sunk in, and they understood its implications. And the implications are the same for us now as they were for them then. And the first implication is that Jesus achieved what he came to achieve. You see, Jesus' birth, life, and death all contributed to a single core purpose. John the Baptist understood this even before Jesus had called his 12 disciples John saw Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That statement today would leave us scratching our heads. What does that mean? But to first century Jews, its meaning was, was obvious because under Mosaic law, lambs were slaughtered for a sin offering, a sacrifice so that sins might be forgiven. In his first letter, Peter would write, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And the significance of the resurrection is that the offering of this lamb of God has been accepted. The sin of the world has been taken away. Well, that's life-changing. To know that my sins can be forgiven, wiped clean, not held against me. If I really grasp that, that is life-changing. Jesus achieved what he came to achieve. But the second implication is that there is now a future hope. So Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So C.S. Lewis, the author of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, um, comments on the significance of this idea. He says, the New Testament speakers, writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. 
He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of a new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has been opened. Well, again, if we grasp this, this is life-changing. To know that there is a life after this life, that's life-changing. This puts a whole new perspective on this life if we know there is another life to follow. And I think this is particularly poignant if aspects of this life have been painful to us. So the band sung this um, song earlier by Steve Curtis Chapman, uh, and uh, Calvin alluded to the tragic circumstances which involved the, the death of his adopted daughter in a car accident. And it shattered his family. It shattered his family. But, and you picked up this, this refrain in the song, out of these ashes, beauty will rise. For we know joy is coming in the morning. In the morning, beauty will rise. There may be pain now, but there is future hope. That's the second implication. And then the third implication is this, <clears throat> that this historic achievement of the past, that Jesus did what he came to do, and this future hope of a life after this life lead us to a present choice. I don't know if you noticed that little phrase that Paul used when writing to the Corinthians. In Christ, all will be made alive. <clears throat> what does it mean to be in Christ? Because Paul uses that phrase a lot in his letters in the New Testament. For example, to the Christians in Rome, he writes, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. To the Corinthian believers, he writes, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. So what does it mean to be in Christ? <clears throat> it's a really important phrase to Paul. To be in Christ is to be connected to Christ, to be sharing in his life through faith, just like a branch shares in the life of a tree. <clears throat> so where that tree goes, that branch goes. If that tree dies, that branch dies. In Colossians 3, Paul writes, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. <clears throat> Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died... And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. <clears throat> well, on face value, that sounds nonsense, doesn't it? Sounds nonsense. You know, when, for you died. When he, he's writing to people who are going to read something, and they're going to say, you died. What does that mean? Well, it means this. If you're in Christ, you died because Christ died. You're connected to him. If you're in Christ, you have been raised because Christ has been raised, because you are connected to him. If you are in Christ, you will appear with him in glory, because he will appear in glory. 
Easter can be for us life-changing if we are in Christ. But you may have noticed that from some of those early verses that this is not automatic. There is a choice to be made. What is that choice? You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. So to share in Jesus' life, to be included in Christ, we must respond to the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, with faith. Through faith, we are grafted into the tree that is Jesus, and we share in his life. And if we make that choice to put our faith in Jesus' message, then all sorts of other life-changing uh, con con conclusions follow. So for a start, there are some things to stop doing and things to start doing. If we carried on reading that section in Colossians 3, we'd see Paul spelling out some of those things, things that we're to rid ourselves of and things that we're to clothe ourselves with. Then there are some things to start experiencing. Because when you are connected to a tree, you will produce that tree's fruit. Things like love and joy, peace, and so on. Wouldn't we like more of those things in our lives? They are some of the fruit of being in Christ. And then the third implication is that there is a new relationship with God to be enjoyed. Before, your sins were a barrier to friendship with God. But that barrier has been torn down. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Christ Jesus. So this life-changing present choice has life-changing present consequences, not to mention the future ones. Well, this may sound all a bit too good to be true, a bit unbelievable. Well, if that's what you're thinking to yourself, can I encourage you to pick up one of the copies of these that you'll find on the, the desk just around the corner there? Um, a little book, read it in no time at all, by Rebecca McLaughlin, but beautifully written, Is Easter Unbelievable? contains four questions that everyone should ask about the resurrection story. So if you've got questions about the resurrection story, you're still not sure about all of this Easter business, then please take one of these. They're free to take away, or if you want to make a contribution, um, a pound. But maybe that's, this is your choice this Easter, to find out more. That would be a good choice to make. Maybe you've already made up your mind. Perhaps your choice is about working through these conclusions. So maybe there are some things you need to stop doing, some things you need to start doing. Maybe it's about being more fruitful for God. Maybe it's about enjoying a closer relationship with God. Easter is a time to celebrate life, and we are all invited to enjoy more, more of the life 
that, that is on offer than we are at present. So maybe that's your choice. Or maybe your choice is to put your faith in Jesus. Maybe your choice is to believe his message for the first time. It is the most life-changing choice you will ever make. What an Easter this could be for you if you made that choice today. Your Easter this year could be genuinely life-changing. I hope it is for some of you. Amen.